0: our teachers always say it's not the ayahuasca actually that does the healing it's the ayahuasca in relationship with the plant diets the ayahuasca is almost like the the medium from which the plant diets come in and they they affect their healing you know um And so it's seen as an incredibly important ally and connector and like it opens the worlds that what's um, known in that tradition as the mariación, the mariación is like the the trance, the world of the trance, the world of the spirits. And then it's the curandero who's trained and has got skills who then kind of, yeah, it's almost like an orchestra of of relationships that then do this, this deep, deep healing work.
1: Hello, and welcome to Sacred Herbalism, the full moon segment of the Elder Tree podcast, where we explore how plants and fungi can support us to enter into a sacred relationship with life and the living world. I'm your host, Stephanie Hazel, herbalist, anthropologist, and a deep lover of this wild world. Let's walk into the moonlit forest together, into a world of magic. Mysticism, psychedelic teachers, and of course, the plants themselves. Are you ready? What does it mean to take a plant out of context? What do we leave behind when we extract a single active chemical from a medicinal plant? What do we lose? When we take a single aspect of Shipibo culture, like ayahuasca ceremonies, but leave all of the cultural nest of animistic relationships with plants and the land behind, these are some of the potent questions that I explore in this episode with Sky Cielita Flor. Sky is a South African woman currently living in Melbourne and is one of the few people I know who has completed a four-year immersive apprenticeship in the Peruvian Amazon where she studied with Shipibo curanderos to become a healer. Four years of full-time training, this actually makes her the most qualified person I know to comment on the rising wave of ayahuasca use in the West. When she came to Australia, she was confronted with the deep grief of having lost the beautiful animism of Shipibo culture and of finding herself bereft of the plants who had become her friends. She'd found herself entirely out of context. Her pathway to grounding into the place she was now was deep ecology, which she believes is the missing framework that any animistic or psychedelic experience needs to be nestled into for a Western person to actually receive the healing that they're seeking. Her work now primarily consists of facilitating experiential deep ecology workshops and retreats under the guidance and tutelage of John Seed, who I actually interviewed previously on this podcast. If you're inspired to learn from this heartfelt, intellectually sophisticated and wildly experienced woman, then you can check out an upcoming webinar with Sky and John in September, which is going to be held online called Honoring Our Pain for the World. I'd love to know about some of your early experiences of plants and relationships with plants. I know that you grew up in South Africa and so there's a lot of amazing plant wisdom in that land and very yeah. different plants from the ones that we know here. Uh, would you share a little bit about that early experience of plant connection?
0: Yeah. Um, wow, I feel, I'm feeling tears in my eyes just thinking about it actually. Yeah. Um, yeah, I grew up on a little um, farm or homestead, um, just very close to the Mahalisburg Mountains in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And my mum, my mum was a herbalist. She had her own herbal apothecary called fever tree when I was growing up. and she had a still a plant still. and yeah, I feel like I, I just kind of was exposed just through her own excitement and enthusiasm. We always had like herbal, Um, books on the on the coffee table in our lounge room and she always tended a really beautiful herb garden in our backyard so I just remember almost every single day just walking these little stone pathways that she'd created and you know we'd have all the plants with the salvias and the rosemarys and the lavenders and the chamomiles and just like everything you know just growing there um and then she had this gorgeous still. And her friend, she she ran Fever Tree with two friends of hers. One of whom was a Inyanga. Inyanga is like a traditional um, South African herbalist, but it, I guess it goes a little bit further than just herbalism. Like, yeah, you know, in maybe into the realm of like vegetalista, like spirit spirit um, herbalist. And so she was traditionally trained
1: what
0: is that word again in younger in so you have we have in-yanga. sangomas which are very well i think the name sangoma is a bit more well known um and sangomas are, are like our i guess our shamans or our curanderos back home in south africa and they work with plants but not they're not like herbalists necessarily whereas nyangas are you know like yeah african south african herbalists but with that extra layer um yeah, so one of their their trio was in younger. So they had a lot of African plant medicines, traditional medicines as part of their apothecary. And, and I used to just go along while they gathered medicines. And I still have memories of like walking through big like lavender fields with my mum and her friends, and you know all of us coming home with armfuls of of lavender to go into the into the still. And yeah, they were making hydrosols, which is yeah, something that at that time, like there wasn't a lot else. I, I didn't know of anyone else. I mean, I was a child, but I don't I don't remember or recall anyone else doing that um, in South Africa at the time. There might have been, but yeah, it was it was a beautiful way to be kind of exposed to the plants. And yeah, she was the kind of mum who would like force feed you spirulina, you know, when you were sick, and, like put like olive leaf um, tinctures in, under your tongue when you were not feeling.
1: Yum. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, totally. Yeah. So, wow,
1: what a beautiful way to meet the plants, to be growing up in such a rich herbal environment. I think it's something that very few people have had and to then be working with plants yourself as an yeah. adult, there's a beautiful quality of lineage in there that mm. that is quite potent.
0: Yeah, yeah I feel
1: really lucky that I, I was open there, to it. Were there any plants in particular that were really meaningful to you as a child that
0: you felt you had a friendship with? Oh, so many actually. Um, so my bedroom window um, faced out towards one of our, our horse paddocks and right outside my bedroom window was a big lavender bush. So, yeah, I just remember growing up with a scent of lavender every single day day of my life and yeah it's still a plant that I feel really close and connected to um yeah some of them are very i guess we could even call like common or, you know, some folks might even think of them as boring but rosemary was one that I've always always loved um and still to this day like I I have a rosemary at every house that I live in and actually the last house I lived in I was really struggling to get them to grow and it was <laughs> such a source of, of frustration to me um, yeah, so I guess, you know, what we might think of as the common kitchen herbs were always very present. But in terms of the African plants, Sutherlandia was a very common one that, you know, my mum felt really passionate about. I don't know if you know or have heard much about Sutherlandia, but there's, you know, quite a bit of research now around its activity with cancer. And so at that time, there was a lot of um, curiosity about it because I think that research was quite emergent at that moment when she was, you know, running her apothecary. And then um, African potato was another one. Um, eye, which is a kind of succulent. Like there's just so many beautiful plants from that land that I, I really miss. Um, yeah, the, the, the plant knowledge of that land is really deep and I guess comparatively available. Um, to here in my experience so far in my few years of living in Australia yeah so I miss that as well did you ever
1: go out in the land like wild harvesting plants with your mother or with the younger that was part of her work team
0: not so much the the African plants no like most of my harvesting experience when I was young was was the lavender the rosemary you know because because the still I was I was hopeful, mostly harvesting for the still, and the still requires large amounts of aromatic plants, um, predominantly, as, as I'm sure you know. Um, yeah, so I think most of the memories are around yeah those kinds of plants for that. Yeah.
1: And as you said, they might sound boring, but I think that there is um, a real power in these plants that are in such close relationship with humans and have been for such a long time. And for a lot of people, you know, for me, the closest plants in my childhood were chamomile and peppermint because they were yeah. the teas that I drank every day of my childhood. Totally. And- you know they had all these associations a peppermint for me was a bedtime for some reason the be- my bedtime tea was peppermint not chamomile I think that <laughs> I had quite a few, lot of digestive stuff happening so mum would make me a peppermint tea in bed and so that's one of my deep childhood friends that I mm-hmm. really discounted when I became a herbalist and got passionate about plants because there's something in our culture of this grasping for that exotic and so absolutely uh, it, they seem more powerful if they're from South America or from South Africa and, and I yeah rosemary I agree with you rosemary is a plant um that I think is really underrated and at when I was studying at uni I did a 3,000 word monograph on rosemary you could choose oh, any wow. plant and yeah you can actually write 3,000 words about <laughs> the healing powers of rosemary it's I it's believe it phenomenal, you know liver decongesting but warming and stimulating it's a very unusual combination you know like totally. antidepressant brain helping liver clearing but still with this warming invigorating you know aerating quality to it
0: I'd love so, yeah, to read everyone that. who has rosemary in their garden
1: <laughs> should be having
0: rosemary tea yeah yeah absolutely I, I so feel that I so feel that actually the, the one of the plants that has been a real stable friend and is actually native to South Africa now that we're talking about it, is is um rooibos which you know um red bush is I guess the English name for it and I was weaned onto that plant my mum said that when she stopped feeding me milk she would put rooibos in a bottle for me and that was my nighttime drink from very 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 young um
1: is that yeah. a traditional use of rooibos in South Africa? Like No, not that
0: it? I know of. She just she just intuitively mm. did that and it's still it's feels like a friend. Like I I literally it feels like this warming hug to me. And I always mm. always have it on hand. And <laughs> when I was living in the Peruvian jungle, we, we had sorry, my dog is barking. Um yeah, I would always bring packs of rooibos with me as well so that I could keep drinking it. So, yeah that's been a really steady one and it, it's been so steady that I would say that for quite some time I didn't even take conscious notice you know um yeah it was quite a quite an amazing thing to wake up to the fact that I'd had this literally this lifelong re- relationship since infancy to a to to a robust, yeah
1: I think that that's um something I really love uh supporting people to unpack when I do workshops around plant connection is yeah. looking for those relationships that we already have with plants and even yeah. if someone thinks they're not a plant person and they're just getting involved and there are all these plants out there that they have an aspiration to be in relationship with yeah the reality is we all do have these existing intimate relationships that we just need to turn our attention towards and they can become Gosh. sacred as you said mm-hmm. yeah. yeah I think
0: ginger is another one I always joke about how my baby who's seven months old is probably half ginger because I just I have ginger all the time and every time I drink I, I tend to add ginger to a lot because I feel like I have a bit of a cold constitution and I've intuitively just gone towards ginger you know and so I feel like that's another one of those not slightly undercover <laughs> helpers
1: the herbs that built our babies yeah. my partner was joking when I was pregnant and we were looking for a name for our daughter it's like what about nettle because I so much nettle I mean, like liters and liters and liters of it yeah um, and actually is a really cute name unfortunately half my family is french speaking and it becomes like nettle it's like a really weird i was like no i can't do that to my child you
0: know no 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 oh, or the french word for nettle
1: name. is orti which is also an awful word so i was like no
0: but her name would have been netty for short which would have know, been would, so sweet yeah it's yeah. very
1: cute <laughs> Um so you mentioned just before that when you went to the Amazon that you were using Robos and I know that you had an incredible experience of being 16 and going to live in the Amazon um studying plant medicine which is an incredible incredible journey that I'd love to hear more about would you mind sharing some
0: Yeah so actually I went I went to the Peruvian Amazon for the first time at 16 just for a retreat and then I I returned home after that um And then I returned at 23 and I was there from 23 to 28. So yeah, but my first experience of of, um, working with ayahuasca in a retreat setting was at 16 years old. And um, yeah, it was, I mean, it completely changed my entire trajectory in life. And I feel like it it came at the perfect moment because I was experiencing quite quite deep, severe um, death anxiety, actually. Um, You know, the the atmosphere in South Africa, there's a lot of fear. And um, I had seen my grandmother passing away from cancer just a few years before. And yeah, I grew up in a kind of rationalist, materialist household in the sense that I wasn't given any kind of um, cosmology for meeting impermanence and the reality of of death and awakening to that um, was terrifying for me as a child. and I and I ended up becoming like comp, like I could not sleep well at night without thinking about it. It was just really took over my my days and nights and started experiencing panic attacks, all kinds of things essentially. And my mm. grandmother, the same one who passed off cancer, she left me an inheritance, a small inheritance. And I used that to fly to Peru at 16 and participate in an ayahuasca retreat. And, yeah, my parents were very cool. <laughs> they let me go. Um, Clearly. And, yeah, it was absolutely phenomenally life-changing experience. And I knew that I would go back, and I went back some years later, yeah.
1: So it's quite interesting that you were having that experience so young. And I think that maybe, as you've said, being in South Africa, which is a um, culture and a time in history as well. When you were younger, there was a lot of violence. And so you probably exposed that a lot more than most of us in Australia would have been. Absolutely, Um, (laughs) way more. And and you're right, You know, I think that's the big thing why why the topic of the sacred is so enlivening and feels important to me is that it's quite unusual in the history of humanity for us to come of age in a culture that does not actually give us uh, mythological or spiritual guideposts to help us navigate All these other experiences that we are having, deny them or accept them or not, they're happening under the surface in our dreams, in our heart, and we can deny them for a certain point of time. Then people get to a point, usually much later than 16, like I'm going to die. What what does it all mean? And there's not much guidance. Even for you growing up in a household of a herbalist and a plant, which essentially like you had Mm -hmm. all these interesting influences around you that still wasn't there. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's why I feel this topic is so potent. And for me, I think my experience of that, um, my parents were, you know, hippies and we traveled for many years. We lived on a boat and lived in Africa. We lived in Canary Islands. And my, you know, I had a Buddhist birthing ceremony. My dad's quite a strong practicing Buddhist. But still, I remember going to a Catholic school in far north Queensland when I was a child. And I actually am really grateful for the religious education that I had in in high school because even though I don't identify as Christian, my parents were like, yeah, there's beauty in it. Take what you like. So it was a very permissive way to engage nice. with the church. And I loved singing in the choir and I loved singing to God as a little girl, you know. <laughs> but I remember being about eight, coming home to my dad and being like, I had a teacher who was particularly religious and I was saying, you know, they're telling us that if we don't believe this and that, you know, we'll go to hell and which is an awful thing to do to a child. But, terrible. Um, and I was like, you know, am I, should I believe that? Like, what should I believe? I remember my father turning around and saying, well, they believe that, I believe this, and he told me a whole story about Buddhism. Um, but that's not what you believe. You know, part of your journey of being alive as, a, as an adult, and a human, is to find what you believe to be true for you. Wow. And that does sound really beautiful, but I remember being furious at him. Because at that age, that was so much responsibility to put on a little child. And mm. I really needed some guideposts, you know. Yeah. So I, there is some beautiful wisdom in what he was trying to offer me. Yeah, And it's much better than, like, believe in Jesus or you're going to hell kind of mentality. Or believe in X, Y, Z, and you're having this terrible, you know, or you'll have this terrible outcome. It's not just Christianity that does that. But, yeah, I really felt at that point, like, no no, you're, you're, you're the, my father, you're meant to be giving me, um, more guidance than that in this Mm -hmm. world, Mm -hmm. yeah, and, you know, then, so then where are we finding that, and it sounds like for you, you found some of that mythopoetic, um, sacred mapping (laughs) and framework, uh, in the Amazon, is that right?
0: Yeah, yeah, I would say, well, first of all, yeah, I, I hear how, um, challenging it would have been to be offered this open <laughs> the world essentially as so young without a solid pointer and also at the same time how incredible that you grew up with such you know um i guess comparatively conscious or aware parents compared to so many of us so yeah <laughs> i think in my family like yeah my mum was a herbalist as you know um but at the same time it was it was still very much embedded in the in, you know, the, the, the stories of modernity in objectification and consumer you know, like there was very much, this is a herd that's outside of me and it's got these properties and this is what it's useful for, you know, like it was still very um, approached in that way. And my father is a is a hardcore atheist, you know, and when he was asked the question, what happens, he was like, well, you just get eaten by worms and this whole thing is a, you know, a bizarre um Mistake or, or whatever else, <laughs> like I wasn't really given much at all, which um, is terrifying. Yeah, terrifying, terrifying. Because I think at that age I was, you know, simultaneously I'm in this this country where, uh, it's you know, South Africa is one of the great loves of my life as a land. I absolutely love it, and it's it's a scary place to grow up. Mm. There are there is a lot of violence and um, discord and. Yeah, like it was at that age where I was really, you know, awakening to that in a big way, um, and so confused by that, and being a child, a set of settler, co- you know, colonial child, and um, at the same time, like witnessing my grandmother passing through four years of cancer and losing the battle. Um, through, you know, um, pharmaceutical Western medicine. And then, yeah, I guess another thing that actually set off was was my cat, who was one of the dearest, also great loves of my life to this day, passing away from a heart attack in my arms at 14 years old. And, you know, having those three experiences very close together um, and just not having any kind of guidance or framework for holding that um is it's a it's a deeply scary um place and I and i feel like actually so much of our culture and and the things that we spend our time getting busy um focusing on can be a a way to like not not feel that you know to kind of like paste over that that truth um yeah so anyway i couldn't Avoid. do it for whatever reason <laughs> avoidance of death yeah. yeah totally totally yeah. um denial of death that great denial of death um I at great like cost
1: that... to ourselves and the earth uh, around us abs- it's
0: interesting it's interesting so for me that
1: you've um that that was your impetus to go to meet ayahuasca because bringing my father back into it interestingly he asked me at one point you know maybe five years ago you know well, what do you get from your experience with ayahuasca he was really curious and um you know being a buddhist he's very interested in Soul and spirit, and I sat there and really thought about it. I wanted to give him a real answer, and I came to the place of being like, "Well, I think the one thing ayahuasca taught me is that she's taught me how to die."
2: Hmm. Yeah, I and agree. I don't
1: know that you know, I wouldn't say that to anyone, right? But but my dad, being who he is, he and I said that, and he was like, "Oh, well, that is very worthy." so that's yeah. very important you know yeah yep. like Buddhism yep. is very focused on that moment well his strand of Buddhism is very focused on that moment of death and how important that
0: is and knowing yeah. how to die being really important yeah yeah, yeah. and I, I identify largely as a Buddhist myself and um, we know um, personally when I was living in Peru <clears throat> we had whole Buddhist sanghas come on retreat with us and actually um had a Tibetan Buddhist lama come and train to offer ayahuasca to his um, sangha. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) one of the many stories we have from that time. Um, And do you relate to that at all around learning how to die? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I feel like that has been a massive um, transmission from the medicines to me. Uh, Surrender and death again Mm. and again and again and again. Yeah. Well, they're so related, right? Like death is the
1: ultimate surrender. So when we're sitting in an experience that's really potent and terrifying, as ayahuasca really can be and kind of should be, I think, then having that um, moment where you're feeling like I need to try and control this and surrender
0: is letting go of control. Totally. Well, that was my very first ceremony at 16. Plunged me straight into my own death and I spent, yeah, many hours um, dying. Again and again and again and again until it kind of spat me out into something that was, um, I guess we could, I would now call my larger sense of self, or, or the place of no self, more specifically, actually, um, the ego death uh, that births you into, again, that ineffable um, experience of being beyond, beyond a self, and that was my first ceremony at sixteen. <laughs> it was. Yeah. I mean, it's such a long story. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. But I just knew, I just knew that that was going to be my, part of my work, but the plants were very explicit actually on my third ceremony. Um, I was told to go and study Chinese medicine and I didn't know anything about Chinese medicine at the time. I didn't know anyone else who had studied Chinese medicine, but I have found myself in the ceremony just, uh, well, you can't see what I'm doing, but I was intuitively doing acupressure on myself and like working along what I now know to be the meridians, but I didn't know that that's what I was doing at the time. And, um, yeah, I was really, um, I guess you could say almost obsessed with finding because in South Africa, there was no place to, to study Chinese medicine. So I had made plans to like go and move to China or Cambodia and study it there. And just as I was about to leave, this is now a few years later after this experience in the jungle, I ended up, um, entering into a traditional Chinese medicine apprenticeship with a doctor of Chinese medicine in South Africa, but it wasn't a school. He was literally a doctor of Chinese medicine from Mauritius of Chinese lineage from a very long lineage of practitioners. And he was just accepting a handful of apprentices. And I managed to, to worm my way in by some great synchronicity into this apprenticeship. And I'm so grateful that I had that. I had three years of intensive study with him and it wasn't, my path to to do that full time. Um, But I feel like it gave me a really good grounding into the language of energetics and some of the embodiment practice of of Tai Chi and Qi Gong and like, you know, just yin yang and five element philosophy and all of that to carry that into the jungle, into my five-year apprenticeship was really powerful. I feel like it helped me connect deeper with the plants in that tradition there, yeah.
1: I could go into a whole... Thread of conversation with you around that interplay, I'd be fascinated. But I actually really want to hear more about what the shape of your five-year apprenticeship in the jungle was like. like tell us more about that, please.
2: Yeah.
0: So I ended up returning to the jungle um, after my three years of Chinese medicine. Um, actually, with a year of of wilderness guiding in between, I'm quite. I had a, a lot of a very eclectic early years. <laughs> Um, yeah so then I went I went to Peru and my first year was a bit um, fumbling like I didn't really know I knew I wanted to study I didn't know who I wanted to study with yet I didn't have a plan I just kind of arrived I didn't have Spanish yet so I knew I needed to get Spanish get Spanish I'm still getting Spanish I'm I'm not that great at it but I'm it's functional (laughs) um And so, yeah, I spent the first year just volunteering at different centres and finding my way to different teachers and, and, you know, I guess being exposed to actually quite a wide array of different traditions, like there's the Mestizo traditions and then I guess the Shipibo, who I did end up studying with, um, are also really well known. But there's a lot of other approaches to ayahuasca and they're really quite different. Um, And so I, I still chuckle when people talk about I sat in ceremony with ayahuasca because I feel like ceremony and ayahuasca can mean and can be such different things for so many different people. Yeah. Anyway, so I I was really fortunate. I got to study with a mestizo and do a dieta with him um, for a few months Volunteered at another center with a witoto curandero for a few months. And I got to experience dieta and ceremony with quite a few different people and different approaches. And toward the end of that first year, I found my teacher. Um, and this is actually a family of teachers because his whole family practice, including his wife. And I ended up in apprenticeship um, in the Mahua Lopez lineage um, of uh, within the Shipibo tradition. And I was simultaneously mm-hmm. um, working as a facilitator at the Ayahuasca Foundation. And that's kind of how I funded my, my apprenticeship. So I, I was able to kind of sit in ceremonies because my job was to be a facilitator on retreats um, with my teachers, as mm-hmm. well as a translator and also as a student. So while we were facilitating and taking care of all the mechanics of retreat, which is a lot. Um, we were simultaneously being instructed on how to gather plants and prepare medicines. We sat in on all the consultations and we were also, um, very rigorously trained in ceremonial facilitation. So Mm -hmm. right from the get go, we were, you know, being trained in singing ikaros and doing dietas. And so, yeah, I would have these kind of concentrated experiences of, of sitting in retreat with my teachers and watching them. Yeah. Um treat people of all of all kinds, of all kinds of, of reasons for being there. I'm, when I first got there, ayahuasca wasn't so known or popular, like it wasn't a household name yet. So a lot of the people that were finding their way to us were folks who were, were in deep need or were, were like deep seekers, you know, and I feel like it changed later on as it became a bit more popular. There was a lot more... Um, younger folk coming for the sake of exploration which is you know that's valid as well but the scene changed in my in my time there um yeah and we got to experience and uh, witness our teachers um, treating all kinds of things and just to be
1: clear here so the ayahuasca experience was part of that treatment process but it wasn't the entirety of it and there were a lot of other types of healing plants and healing practices that were being used would you mind speaking about that a bit
0: yeah actually thanks for for naming that um so i would yeah i think what happens is that often folks think of it as ayahuasca and even i'm using that language because that's just how it's spoken about now but yeah, the retreats were curanderismo retreats, and we were studying curanderismo, which is an entire tradition of medicine of which ayahuasca is a part. Um, now, obviously, a lot of the folks that were coming down on a retreat were seeking out ayahuasca explicitly, but you know, we got to witness our teachers treating a lot of locals where ayahuasca is just not even a part of the treatment at all. You know, and you know, a lot of the locals actually thought we were all mad for wanting to to drink as much as we did and you know actively seeking it out because it's not actually always a a part of well often actually it's not a part of the treatment only if it seemed to be necessary sitting in on ceremony is is very common um so people
1: local people are sitting in on ayahuasca ceremony without actually participating in or taking in ayahuasca into their own bodies
0: yes yeah yeah so in and that what tradition is the appeal of
1: that for people
0: yeah so in the current tradition that we studied in. Um, we work with the medicine, or we drink the ayahuasca as as a as a curandero because it kind of enhances the sight. Um, so it allows us to see into our our patients and to diagnose what's going on. And it also opens the channels of connection with our um, plant allies, which we have built through. Like these are deep relationships that we have created through the process of dieta, which is like the keystone of that whole tradition. And I would say, you know, um, the part that I didn't get to before was, you know, between each retreat, we were going into dieta and like building, um, like deep connection with different plants. And so the point of drinking the medicine is to, to connect with your, um, plant allies and then to allow them to move through your songs, which are known as Icaros, um into the patients and do do work so essentially your voice is like a a channel or a pathway that your plant-based relationships move along and they they do really deep intricate um work which sometimes you are like consciously aware of everything that's happening and sometimes you're actually not you're just kind of yeah literally the channel for that work to take place
1: that's so potent there's a few things there that i want to unpack with you i think one of them is the way that that has changed as it's come into western culture the Mm. kind of some of these aspects of the curandero tradition of healing have come into the western culture in a really strong way primarily the use of ayahuasca as a kind of peak experience slash spiritual healing journey right and you know in some ways i wonder whether that's so in so relevant for us because we actually do have this kind of spiritual illness that requires some deep remembering of r- sacred relationship <laughs> but you know, i do think i it's can really inter- to that yeah yeah well let's, let's circle back to that um yeah. there's it's still interesting to me that the way that ayahuasca is being used primarily there in the curandera tradition with local people it's that the healer is taking ayahuasca mm-hmm. because they are using that to strengthen the relationships with the plants and the medicines and the environment the land which makes them a better healer because it's the healing happens through those relationships and there's a shift there as we've brought ayahuasca into the western context we're very materialist Mm -hmm. even with ayahuasca which is a very intense psychedelic kind of spiritual experience for many people we're still very focused on No, the healing happens with the molecules. When the molecule Mm -hmm. goes into my body, that's when I'm healed. It's it's Mm -hmm. a really interesting switch
0: from relationship to material. It's completely, it's like, it's a world changing shift really. Um, And I feel like that was really like the deep part of what I received over there was this incredible transmission of, um, you know, lived transmission, embodied transmission of a worldview beyond, you know, the rationalist, materialist, objectification worldview, you know, and living animism, practicing animism. Um, yeah, but to go back to your point, like the ayahuasca in the in our tradition specifically, our teachers will always say it's not the ayahuasca actually that does the healing. It's the ayahuasca in relationship with the plant diets. The ayahuasca is almost like the, the medium from which the plant diets come in and they they affect their healing, you know. Um, and so it's seen as an incredibly important ally and connector and, like, it opens the worlds. So that What's um, known in that tradition as the mariación. The mariación is like the the trance, the world of the trance, the world of the spirits. And then it's the curandero who's trained and has got skills who then kind of, yeah, it's almost like an orchestra of, of – Relationships that then do this this deep, deep healing work. And yeah, it's very uncommon for like common uh, local people who are not in apprenticeship to drink the medicine themselves. And a lot of them yeah. are actually scared of it. They're very scared. Of it. <laughs> Why are you doing it's that? Like... They
1: should be. It's terrifying. You know, yeah. I've definitely spoken to people who are thinking about working with ayahuasca and having that experience. Like, oh, but, but I'm scared. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, of course.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's the same with dieta. Like dieta was considered a very um like more like apprenticeship specific activity mm-hmm. a lot of the time. Um, there's there's such a thing as a healing dieta, which is a is a you know a set of prescriptions, dietary prescriptions, where you would be eating in a certain way and restricting certain behaviours, like, for example, not having sex or in some cases, you know, like not going into direct sunlight or, you know, whatever the restrictions might be in combination with ingesting um, your, the healing plants that have been seen to be necessary through, usually through a ceremony or as some kind of diagnostic process. And um, yeah, that, that kind of dieta is very, very common for patients, but the, the approach, the dieta of building relationship with the plants for healing work is not really done outside of apprenticeship. Yeah.
1: So let's go into this concept of dieta, because I think it's something that is really interesting and I think important for us to understand and not very well understood.
0: Yes. Highly that's understood, I would say.
1: (laughs) So dieta in Spanish, the word literally means diet. So um, what you're when you're talking about a healing dieta there I think the closest thing that we would have would be a detox maybe you've yes. seen a herbalist or a naturopath or a Chinese medicine doctor and they've said okay you're working with this issue then um, here's your prescribed diet there a detox mm-hmm. you're going to be on your cleanse you're going to have juices and no coffee and no alcohol and then here's the herbs you're taking so yeah. like it's a healing program or a detox is quite similar but then this other yes. kind of dieta that you're talking about this curanderismo apprenticeship Dieta is something that we don't really have in the Western tradition. Um, and my understanding of it, I'd love you to flesh that out. I'll just share my understanding Enjoy, and then please yeah. add, embellish. My understanding is that it's a process of going into a kind of retreat, sometimes also often on your own mm-hmm. and having a very restricted fast-like diet and working with a specific plant and it could be for weeks or months mm-hmm. and that you're meeting or oh, years. Oh, years Wow. Yep. so you're working with a specific plant that might be a particular medicinal plant from the jungle and you are drinking it as tea and bathing in it and dreaming about it and potentially using uh, ayahuasca as a gateway opener to mm-hmm. enable you to communicate with that plant more and that it's a kind of contract you're making with that plant to say, yes, mm-hmm. I want to carry the medicine that you have. Please yes. teach me
0: and I will follow the instructions. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent um, overview. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of folks are trying to, because they often get confused, the two two kinds of dieta. Um, so, yeah, we've started calling the one a healing healing protocol or healing dieta or healing diet. Um, and then the other one would be, um, is now being commonly called a master plant dieta. Um, and everything you just said, yeah, spot on. Um, there are different ways of approaching it, but the way that we do, um, my partner and I, and the way that we were trained to do it was, is generally in isolation and silence for the majority of the time. Um Total fasting, like anywhere from just pure water fasting, other than the intake of the medicine, uh, the plant, that, the body of the plant that you're working with. And then when you do start eating again, extremely bland foods. The idea being that anything with strong flavor or strong um, energy <laughs> will uh, like interrupt the flow of the of the connection with your your plant in question. You know, um, so chili or garlic or yeah, any strong food really, because they each everything that you ingest has its has its own, I guess, um, animacy to it. And so we're trying to like really focus in and hone in and feel the impact of this relationship on the body, on the spirit, on the mind, on on all different levels. And yeah, there's all these kind of ritual protocols that you can engage to help foster that connection, and you're really uh, appealing to the plant in question to to reach toward you and, and, and enter into a teaching relationship, like a student teacher relationship with the, the plant in question. And they don't always, you know, sometimes they don't or not interested in connecting with you for whatever reason, it's not the right time, or that's not your medicine to be working with. And other times it's, you know, it's really, really clear that this is, you know, some folks go, um, you know, short and deep as opposed to long and wide in the sense that they'll diet just one tree over an entire lifetime. And we have one of our teachers who has like a very strong relationship with a particular tree. And while he has dieted with other plants, like he has returned to that one primarily again and again and again and again. And it's, for him, he says pretty much the whole world of medicine is contained within the relationship with just that one tree, whereas other other traditions or other folks would believe that the more diets you have, the more medicine you have, you know. Uh, so, yeah, it's just That's definitely
1: more aligned with the way we would think about it in the West, right, that there's yeah. uh, definitely the way I was studied, I learned and studied herbal medicine through formal training in Australia, there's that unspoken assumption of like the more herbs you know the more medicine that you have and for me it's been a journey of kind of intentionally forgetting about half of the materia medica I studied and just going deeper and deeper with a smaller collection of plants because oh, that's what I feel that I actually can use them to better effect and and so much of what you're saying there about that process of like deep reverent direct transmission and study and relationship building is yeah, you know, feel. I want to breathe that in. Mm-hmm. You know, so invite mm-hmm. everyone listening is to breathe that in. What that kind of relationship with plants, as a herbalist and a healer, might feel like, because I don't actually know that. I'm like starting to touch the edges of that in my personal exploration. Mm-hmm. I've never had a deodorant
0: experience like you're speaking about. Yeah, it's really profound. It's it's a um, a world changing, um, paradigm shifting experience to encounter. A medicine from that you know like oh, we I think so many of us that we when we think of herbalism again it's often like herbalism in our culture is often interchangeable in some ways with pharmacy you know it's like use this herb for this thing and that for that thing and you know and it's like someone who's skilled in herbalism is someone who's like memorized the materia medica and can you know whatever
1: yeah, pharmacy you know phyto being plant the latin name for plant phyto pharmacy yeah. is where you is, is is what we're taught, you know, and it's something that I, I kind of resist because anyone can you know, you could ask chat GTP, what herbs do I use for bladder infection? There's totally no, there's no seeing in that. It's just Not, a regurgitation of association word association.
0: yeah yeah, <laughs> Where, this is so the opposite. it's like deeply, deeply relational. Um, mm-hmm. it, you know, like the medicine, the medicine is obviously the plant itself has medicine, and if you you know if one random person were to prepare, whatever mint for example there would be an effect we know that there's a physiological response to Mm -hmm. the chemical constituents of mint but then in this tradition it's that you know our teachers are like the the deep deeper medicine is in the relationship Mm -hmm. and it's through this depth of relationship and entering into this kind of yeah, I mean, some folks use the word contract, you know, it's like this this experience of, all right, yep, you and I, we're going to be together for a lifetime now. Because through the process of dieta, you're actually inviting, this is the way that my teachers um, describe it, you're inviting the plant to kind of energetically take root in your body. And in the process of dieta, you're creating the conditions where that, you you're, you're you, you can imagine, okay, okay, I'll just use mint again for as an example. If I'm planting the seed, the energetic seed of mint in the soil of my body and then through my practice of making space, I'm creating like the right conditions for that seed to start to grow. And mm. it's through my attention, it's through the ritual, it's through the awareness and the focus and the devotion, actually. It's a very devotional process. You start to like energetically water and give sunlight to that seed within you and it starts to grow you know and Mm. maybe in that first dieta it just sprouts and then you need to do it again um and then it becomes a bit more of an established plant and you can diet one plant over a lifetime and discover like it's a it's there's no end Mm. to where you can go with that relationship you know just like a, a human or anyone else like it's it's bottomless you know but there are certain plants that are I guess more known for their worlds within worlds and this particular tree I was referring to which has become a bit more known now it's called Neuerao which that's a um, bioluminescent tree you know like our teachers would speak to how um, Neuerao contains within it whole universes so if you go and diet with Neuerao you you will eventually dependent on the person because also it's so personal like Mm. you know each diet relationship is so personal you might encounter you know things that no other person who's dieted with noirao has encountered you know and your Mm. kind of flavor of bringing that medicine forward is so unique to the relationship that you have
1: well that's what a relationship is about right like that that's where that different perspective around kind of um objective chemical constituents and relational thinking because yeah. in a relationship it's the emergent quality between two beings so who you are as an individual meeting this plant or a person or anyone else there's a yeah. particular energy that comes from that meeting that is yeah. not existing inside any other meeting and i think the same happens right with with patients with clients that come to herbalists and they're uh you're giving them a, a herb but i think we can make the mistake of thinking that you know, mint always does this, that, and the other, or rosemary is always this. And then th- that that's making the mistake of thinking about them like pharmaceuticals. But a Again, pharmaceutical exactly. is one chemical and a plant Absolutely. is hundreds of chemicals that vary depending on where they were grown when you picked them, what that plant, that particular plant's personality is in that moment. And so then it's like when you give someone a medicine, the relationship between that person and the medicine, even just biochemically, let alone psycho-spiritually, mm-hmm. changes the activity of that plant. Yeah, I think that's that same relational materialist shift that we're talking about.
0: Yeah, it's an, emer- it's an emergent um, experience between the plant and the yeah. person.
1: Yeah, medicine is an emergent experience between a plant and a person. That's a really powerful, I'm going to say that again, Herbal medicine is an emergent experience of he- of mutual healing and and getting mm-hmm. to, and meeting between a plant and a person.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. It's so powerful. It's so powerful. And I I feel like um, it was just this un um, yeah this this gift that I never experienced. I, I never expected to receive. Really, um, I didn't know that that was what I was going to receive. Really and um mm. it's that's that's the piece that i feel unfortunately is is being um cut out and lost a lot as this tradition is is being kind of decontext as as the medicines are being decontextualized and brought to the west i have i have such grief mm. because folks do not know what's being left behind yeah i feel tears actually yeah they don't know like that's that is the medicine that we need as Westerners. Um, is the relationship it's not the peak experience it's not the lightning flash of of ecstasy that will be gone you know next time you get in a fight with your partner or whatever and you get it's like it's the relationship and the the skill in building relationship and the the feeding that soil of relationship like that's what we've lost in the west mm-hmm. that is what we're seeing the consequences of in our culture and you know in this devastating ecological unraveling that's happening um yeah and that was so clear to me i was like wow if we actually lived this way all the time like what we're seeing taking place could not take place it would not be possible actually um yeah in my opinion (laughs) yeah yeah thank you yeah sorry (laughs) (laughs) quite passionate
1: (laughs) Yeah. And so you should be, you know, like you sounds like you had an experience that very few people in the West get to have of of actually getting to feel what it's like to deeply and fully be living in relationship, mutuality and reverence and connection with the plants and the land around you and what that brings you and it sounds like it was a deeply nourishing healing and like rightening experience like it it righted you in yourself and in the world and that's actually what so many people in the west are seeking for our own healing in our deep hearts and souls and all of our anxiety and stress and disconnect and confusion and existential angst that I think, and, you know, you are speaking as well, is coming from that place of ruptured relationship with, with the living world, with Gaia, <laughs> with I, our mother, with the rest of our body, you know? It's like yes. it's like we've cut our heads off and our heads are sitting there being like, hmm, I wonder why I feel, you know, out of, I, feel, I feel so disconnected. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I feel like it's the deep wound in the psyche of Western culture mm. that most of us don't even know is there. And we're running around exactly, as you said, like headless chickens or more more like chicken heads without the money, <laughs> you know, trying yeah. to figure out what's really going on and trying, you know, all these different approaches and medicines and, oh, maybe I just need a better job or a better partner or, you know, more money mm. or whatever it is to try and, and meet what I feel is this deep relational rupture at the core Um, or maybe
1: I need to go to an ayahuasca retreat and have ayahuasca three times and blow blow the hat off my head and then that's going to suddenly fix all these problems and I definitely see that in that community um massively there's so much to be learned there and I definitely have been you know it's one of the reasons that I've been working a lot with these uh kind of experiential plant courses which is in way I'm hearing you talk about dietas and I'm like yeah that's actually that's what I'm reaching for without really knowing that's what I was reaching for it's been there's still this sense like how do I how do I invite people and myself into a space of really meeting medicine plants rather than just being like here's the 20 plants for anxiety being like well here's a plant that can sometimes help for anxiety let's really get to know it and work with it and journey with it so hearing you talk about your experience is so inspiring and I I'd, yeah, I'd love, I'd love for that to develop and grow. That people are having these peak experiences inside a much greater framework, yeah. and it's interesting as well. People are willing to pay for that peak experience to yeah, prioritize it financially and time wise. And if you then go, oh, and actually, this is much a deeper process. We're going to give you like lemon balm for for a month. Pay enough for us to make that happen, and people don't want to do that because it's not glamorous. You know, it doesn't mm-hmm. feel. We've lost the art of subtle communication, and so oh, we're, so nice. you know ayahuasca is great because she's so loud,
0: <laughs> so loud. Yeah,
1: she's like, "Oh, you lost your ears? <laughs> Never mind, I'm here." You know, <laughs> sorry, everyone's ears. Um, and so, like, the, you don't you can you can be completely deaf to the subtle realms and still mm-hmm. hear her. And these other plants are much more subtle, and we have mm-hmm. to reclaim that ability to listen and
0: to hear. You know, and the thing is, you know, like the. <sighs> Ayahuasca works so synergic. Like you can feel when you when you start working with them in this way that they're meant meant to go together. Like ayahuasca opens and synergistically connects with these other plants, and there's a there's a richness to that experience of like it's so obvious to me. How do I say this that that's one of the ways that ayahuasca is meant to be worked with. Less about any random person coming off the street having a peak experience, but rather like entering into this deeper relationship that involves these animist relationships with other plants and bring and you know like seeing the way that she or they weave those connections together um, and opens them up and facilitates. The deepenings and the yeah, it's it's they're meant they're meant to be together, um, in my opinion.
1: And w- so I'm really curious, like what you would encourage people who are already engaging with ayahuasca or are seeking to, how, how what you would encourage them to think about.
0: Mm, yeah, I have a lot on that. Um, I think something that became really clear to both my partner and I when we were in Peru was just this, I guess, this assumption that a lot of us from the West bring that, that whatever you encounter in your ayahuasca experience is just um, – It's just the unfiltered truth without recognizing that we bring all of our cultural stories and assumptions with us into the ceremony a lot of the time. And and particularly on the other end, when we're trying to make sense of and integrate, most of us are filtering that experience through our cultural lenses, our religious lenses, our early, you know, like there's so many um, layers that it passes through. Um, And so I think one of the things would be really important would be to just draw attention to yeah those assumptions that you're you're taking with you to the medicine because even though you can have very powerful direct conditionalist experiences, you always come back into the mind afterwards, and yeah. there's a particular set of a uh, language and and ways in which you are now going to interpret that experience, um, and it makes a difference. So. I guess what has been really powerful for us is um, learning to see, learning to see the water that we're swimming in, in modernity and Western culture, and the ways that that impacts the ayahuasca experience and the way we integrate it on the other side. And what we have been become come really passionate about is actually um, finding living Earth cosmologies and languages and frameworks that. Um, I, as a, as, a, as a settler, colonial, Western person, can uh, take that isn't stealing from another tradition. You know, like I'm not, I studied with the Shapibo, but I'm not Shipibo. I will never be Shipibo. Um, And so what I found is this kind of lens of deep ecology with systems theory and Gaian science and Deep time of of, um, Brian Thomas Swim and the deep ecology. All of those those things move together, and they create, I guess, a a living Earth cosmology and language Mm
2: -hmm. that is
0: animist and relational, and all you know, so many of the things that I experienced in the jungle, but without you know appropriating the shape and the words of someone else's tradition that isn't that isn't mine. Yeah.
1: Not only is that disrespectful and extractive It also doesn't work as well like when you're work taking well. a cosmology that is steeped in cultural assumptions and understandings that you just don't have it is always going to feel a little bit artificial and a little bit contrived you know even even if you love it and it speaks to you there's, you know, there's a contrived nature to it that yeah I think the guy in sciences and for me it did a lot about you know Paganism has been a big part of that as well. Like Mm -hmm. I think early, early adolescence and reading some Starhawk things and really meeting some of these Celtic-inspired neo-pagan myth mythology has been really powerful for me. That's felt like, oh yeah, this is something that I have the right to draw from.
0: You know, totally. Yeah, this this is this my people in some way. I'm a student of um, of Josh Shry from the Emerald podcast, and I think he, you know, like something that I really resonate with him and his work is that I feel like he's done a really brilliant job of drawing, like calling attention to all the ways in which those of us from the West are actually animist in our core, always have been, and bringing bringing the kind of um, mythology of animacy forward again, you mm-hmm. know, and speaking to how animism is normative consciousness it always has always will be it's ours too Mm. of course it is you know like but uh, you know you don't have to go and yeah, take the particular shape of it from someone else. And, you know, because also those shapes are, they're bioregional. Like if I, you know, like that was another thing that was so powerful about being with the Shipibo is their relationship to that land, those plants, that particular river, that, you know, like the mythopoetic beings that kind of, Mm -hmm. that they're interacting with and speaking to and singing to um, on a daily basis are of that land and yet the the shape of them will be found everywhere you know like for example um, you know one that i always you know chuckle about a little bit is um, what they call in their tradition the the sirena the siren you know like this this kind of seductive erotic water being you know like we have the mermaids and like almost every like the you know in the tibetan court you have the nagas like there's these like or the dakinis, the water dakinis, like they're, they're, that shape is similar and will be found cross-culturally. And another one would be the trickster beings, you know, like we have them in South Africa. They're found in Peru that, you know, I know about them from Native American traditions. There's these beings that kind of, they're found on the land that you're on, wherever you are. Um, and so can we kind of come into relationship with, with, yeah, with the land that our feet are connected to from the waters and the airs that we're drinking and, you know, the, like, yeah, I think that's really important. Mm. And
1: when you're saying, you know, they're having relationship with the, that land, you don't just
0: mean the Amazon, you know, you mean like
1: that particular 50 acres where their village oh, and extended lands are absolutely. and that particular Noyarao tree and that mm-hmm. particular river and that's something, you know, I've moved so often in my life, you know, from yeah. – you know, cross cross nationally as well, and even in Australia, from Cairns all the way down to Melbourne, that's a big shift in land and climate and plants, yeah. and and that's hard for us to develop when we are transient in that way. And totally. I think that your know, deep ecology, you know, you said that you've become a student of John Seed, who was interviewed in the podcast before, which is a really beautiful interview. If people haven't heard it, to get a deeper dive into this deep ecology uh, landscape and. And story I think that deep ecology some of those practices are really good practical tools to start developing those relationships with
0: the earth wherever it is that you find yourself absolutely and and that for me was you know it was such a gift because when I left the jungle and I moved um, here to Australia my partner's Australian and he he um, underwent the five-year well, four-year because I was one year kind of experimenting and looking for a teacher and then four years in um, full-time apprenticeship. Uh, we did that together. And yeah, I feel really lucky that we had that experience. Um, but yeah, when we came here, there was just such a sense of bereftness because obviously leaving that incredible place and everything that we were doing there. And this, I guess, also a role that had such a deep sense of purpose um, connected to it, but also this incredible loss of vibrant animacy in terms of like the the waters that we were swimming in culturally and in our day-to-day conversations and, you know, interactions with other people were, were steeped in that awareness and um, permission to be in relationship with other than humans and was constantly modeled to us by the people around us. And it was so normal. It was so normalized that it came out into our day to day in which here, it's actually really hard. Like, even though I had such a deep experience of that over here, like over there coming here into this incredibly materialistic culture where if you were to do half of the, even a fraction of what we were doing over there, you'd be seen as incredibly weird. <laughs> you know, so it, it, I feel like I almost had to kind of put it underground. It now feels like a really tender part of me that I have a hard time speaking about. I feel very protective of it. And um, yeah, there was this bereftness in, in having to go underground in that way when we came here. Um, and it was in that place of of deep grief grief i guess also from recognizing like in a new way the intensity of of the wound of our of, our, of the of the western psyche you know like after having i guess bathed in the, the healing waters for all those years like coming here and experiencing the wound afresh but in a very conscious way um it was devastating and i feel like deep ecology gave off with john seed it like provided a space first to like name the grief all these griefs and Mm. normalize those griefs and express those griefs because grief ritual is a big part of that work um yeah and has become a really big part of the work that my partner and I now offer like I feel like that's that's a whole other podcast really that Mm. we could speak to it's like very very essential part of our practice um but also in in addition to that he kind of yeah, named and gave language to all these things that were kind of more implicit in our experience in the jungle, I suddenly could talk about them, you know, Mm -hmm. using the language of deep ecology and um, the ecological self and the wider sense of self and animism. And, you know, I I really had to work to, like, say it because you can't – it's hard to, like, experience it fully unless you can say the thing. I don't know. I don't know if you've had that experience, but that's been my experience. Like, I really – have needed to to grapple for the language to integrate such a massive shift, <laughs> and yeah. he gave us that in such a powerful way, and and we followed that thread ever since, and I I now feel like a pretty strong advocate of of bringing deep ecology together with I guess the modern use of of plant medicine. Mm. I feel like it it's a context, because what's happened is like in carrying plant medicine over from the traditional context, animist contexts, bioregional context into modernity at large, mm. we've decontextualized it a lot. We've focused on the loud, exciting, ecstatic, dramatic part of the process. And we've cut out, the legs, basically, the beauty, like all the other bits, and I feel like this is a kind of this is a way of 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 wrapping those experiences in um, earth, living earth context.
1: Yeah. yeah, I think what you're talking about there, when we speak about decontextualization, people might say, "Well, what does it matter if we take something out of context?" You know, and and that I, you know, that that is part of the challenge of the western mind is that we have been taught that it's the things that matter not the not the context or the system that they exist in and even in quite cutting-edge philosophy of you know sociology and psychology and organizational management we're seeing systems thinking emerging in some of the cutting-edge western thinking in the world and it's a return to a much older ecological way of thinking because Anyone yeah. can look at an ecology and see that it is essentially a con- system of relationships yeah. and systems thinking, whether you're looking at Shapibo animism and Coranderismo traditions, whether you're looking at Celtic pagan earth-based worshipping traditions or you're looking at organisational systems thinking psychology, mm-hmm. you know, which I've looked at all of them, so <laughs> I feel like I can speak to that place, what we're seeing there is that it's the relationships that hold the true power and yes. it's the relationships that allow us and everything to make sense of what's happening and also to um, be in balance, for things to be balanced and sustainable, you know. Yeah. When you take yeah. things out of context, it's an unsustainability that comes through because it's not that thing, whether it is a spiritual practice from another culture, whether it is a molecule from a medicinal plant you're taking it out of the context of the rest of the chemicals and substances that are in that plant whether it's ayahuasca coming out of the context of the jungle or whether it's taking a person out of context and moving them somewhere totally different where things get harder they become less sustainable there are unintended consequences and it's harder to make sense of them so that's why we're talking about context Mm-hmm. It's so important for things, especially transformative peak psychedelic experiences to be yeah. safely nestled inside a context yeah. That, yeah. that holds that experience in a way that is safe and makes sense, you know. Yeah. yeah. Oh, thank you for saying it like that. That was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, cool.
0: mm-hmm. yeah, so
1: I'm hearing that there's this you're really feeling the dangers you're seeing the dangers and the risks and the, the great tragedy of losing the context of ayahuasca use in the, the experiences that you've had and then coming out here out of context without that kind of safety net of relationships and meaning-making net of relationships and for you that deep ecology has been that context that ayahuasca and many other of those kinds of experiences can sit inside of and still make sense to a western mind and I would argue that it would do a better job than if we brought the whole Shipibo system over, and which we can't because that
0: system you is can't. land-based, you know. It's land-based, exactly. And even
1: for you living there, like, I imagine that it came a point where you were like, this is amazing and it's, and it's not mine.
0: That's exactly the point I came to. And that was, yeah, a whole other, yeah, limb of my journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's something I'm still journeying, you know, because I'm South African. I went and did an apprenticeship in Peru. Then I moved to Australia, you know, like. <laughs> I've, you know, I felt that that shock of being transplanted multiple times and having to really kind of figure out. All right, well, I'm here now. Like, what does it look like for me now? You know, mm-hmm. like I, I, you know, there was some moments where folks were asking, oh, "Are you guys going to run ceremonies and people, You know, like, and it just, it just felt wrong. It was like I can't do that because I'm, I'm not that, and this land is asking need to just slow down and and actually mm. rediscover what what all of those experiences like look like here you know how do they ripen here how do they grow here um mm. and it was painful because obviously you know a 4 year apprenticeship you're there's a p- very particular materia medica that you're diving into you know with our teachers like we had to leave our friends behind not just our human friends but all of our plant friends that you know, that are not easily accessible here. And I wouldn't want, like, you know, so much of the apprenticeship was gathering live plants in a very particular way that's part of the medicine. And I was like, that just doesn't, it just doesn't work in this context. It needs to look different here. It needs to feel different here. It needs to be informed by the lands here and the story of this land and the story of my own ancestry. And so now I kind of see, now I see it as as a combination of, of place-based in the sense that I'm I'm entering into a deeper relationship with this land, the spirits of this land, which are the plants, you know, Mm -hmm. we've been dieting with the plants here for the last few years. Um, But also, you know, uh, the river and the actual other aspects of the land. It's not just the plants, you know, it's like you're in a relationship with all Mm -hmm. of the land here, which includes the history of the land and the wounds of the land, you know, like, and, you know, you're also in Melbourne, so you've, I don't know if you've experienced this, but when I came here, I really felt like the ghosts of this land and it feels soaked in in unexpressed grief. That was my mm-hmm. experience when I arrived here. And I really had to, like, find a way into a relationship with the ghosts and the, re- and I'm still doing that, as, you know, that's a lifelong journey. Um, so that's one aspect is, like, very... Land or terrestrial-based connection, and then the other piece that came in really strong strongly for me when I arrived here was actually reconnecting with my ancestry and finding what medicines and gifts and relationships
2: mm-hmm. are mine
0: through through the blood. And part of that was actually um, a really beautiful six-month um, journey with a sangoma, a South African traditionally trained sangoma who lives here in Melbourne, and. Um, you know, the Sangoma tradition is very ancestral blood-based medicine and healing, um, and it was it was actually really fantastic to <laughs> kind of go from studying Kurindirizma in the jungle to being, like, here in Australia, feeling a bit like, well, what do I do, you know, and then having this, this piece of, like, South Africa coming in through a European... Ancestored, you know, but traditionally Sangoma trained white man. <laughs> it was just <laughs> fascinating, you know. And so I'm
1: speaking of mixed contexts. <laughs> oh,
0: I know, I know. I was like, this is just totally wild, but it, but it felt like a really important um, introduction, I guess, to. To blood based relationship and yeah. ancestor based relationship. It's part
1: of that context as well. You know, each of our personal context is yeah. also related to our ancestral context and who, who those people were and what their traditions were and what gifts and uh, wounds they carry that shot for us in our lives.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I feel yeah. like that really actually brought me kind of almost full circle back to some of the, I'm using quotations here, boring kitchen plants again. Because I was like, wow, so many of these plants have been with my ancestors for who knows Mm. how long, you know, and kind of like starting to really explore the relationships with plants that my mum used on me growing up, you know, like and that were outside of my bedroom window, you know, that I didn't, that I was in deep relationship with but not having this, technology of relationship, you know, like from this new perspective of now having this awareness and this technology of relationship. And, you know, that's been really beautiful discovery, rediscovery of old friends in a new way as well. Yeah, it's beautiful. I actually
1: had someone come to to me recently. They had a frozen shoulder and it was really acute and lots of pain. And they're like, oh, can you do anything? I can't get into the osteo. And so I gave them um, a mix of herbs, you know, tincture to take. But I also went out to the garden and two plants that – have some use for that kind of thing. You know, they're not like the ones known for that, but they have an application was mugwort, which is definitely used for pain. Yep. And also yarrow, which is used for bruising and blood moving. And they're the yep. two plants I had in my garden that felt, you know, aligned enough. And I have deep relationships with both of those plants. Yeah. Uh, and so I went out, this is a, he a, was a French man and not at all, you know, into this kind of thing. So I picked these herbs for him and I gave, told him instructions to go home and make a poultice on his shoulder. I did say, you know, like these plants have been found in Neanderthal graves in France. You know, these plants have been journeying with your ancestors and, you know, whether Neanderthals were ancestors or not, they were also being used by the Cro-Magnons since before you, they were actually fully human. Yeah. yeah, That's yeah. how long your people have carried this medicine and exactly- I saw him just be like oh wow <laughs> something he'd never thought of before and it felt really powerful to hand over those plants with that reminder it, I was giving him some context for his existing relationship with those plants
0: and I think that is just so so true and I, I really have felt I, I remember the first few times doing diets with, you know, the the common kitchen plants and saying to my partner, I feel like, even though this is the first time I've done this diet, particular diet, which one of them was lavender, I feel like I've dieted this plant many times before mm. already because the it felt so quickly established, you know, in that kind of metaphor I was giving earlier about you planting it in the soil and maybe the first diet is a sprouting and then the next diet is a, it felt very quickly grown, you know, inside of me, that connection. And I was like, it's because I've kind of been micro dieting with these plants my whole life, you know, and probably over Um, multiple generations, you know.
1: I suspect you go far enough back through our ancestors, my ancestors, your ancestors, and there are people who did deep diet like work with these plants. Yeah, I know it to be true. As herbalists, yeah, and, and yeah. so that those are also yeah. the ancestors have done some of that work for us, you know. Yeah, yeah. But coming exactly. back to those plants that are your ancestral plants. And for me as a European I was I mean, I was born in Europe, you know, as a European person those plants are my ancestral medicine and there's there's to find those plants and the ones of the land that i live i think is that's mm-hmm. the, the the magic interaction spot
0: yeah totally oh yeah. so magical yeah
1: been so nice to talk to you sky thanks so much oh, for being here
0: yeah thank you so much more we could say this is yeah yeah beautiful <laughs> feels rare
1: Well, I'm not sure if you could tell, but I had an absolute ball during that interview. That's the first time I've had the pleasure of talking to Skye one-on-one like that. But I have been getting inspired by her thought-provoking, earth-connecting writing that she regularly posts on social media. So if you're on Instagram or Facebook, follow her. I really recommend it. And if you're ready to start deepening your own personal relationships with plants in a way that is really inspired by the dieta tradition, planting the seeds of these relationships, so to speak, then that's exactly what I do in my upcoming Finding Your Plant Allies course. We start on the 17th of August and you'll be working with five different plants. The course is really designed to help you learn the skill of developing this kind of relational way of being with plants. You can check out the link in the show notes below and I'd just love to have you along. That's us for this moon cycle. I'm so glad you walked into the dark forest with me. This podcast is part of The Elder Tree, a non-profit dedicated to empowering people through grassroots herbal education, weaving a strong community of herbalists, healers and plant folk in Australia. You can head over to theeldertree.org to find out more. If you liked this episode, we'd love you to subscribe. And if you know who we should interview next, drop us a line. See you next month. And in the meantime, may you be blessed with good health and many plants.